Chapter 5. The Sometimes. And these hath God made for the use of man only in times of famine and excess of hunger. Doctrine and Covenants 89.15. The Snakes of Zion's Camp. During the summer of 1834, Zion was in turmoil. The saints in Missouri had been driven from their lands, and the Lord commanded that Joseph Smith lead a group of saints from Kirtland to redeem Zion by power. What commenced was a march to Jackson County, Missouri, commonly referred to as Zion's Camp. Along the way, these saints endured many hardships and trials. One day, as the prophet was pitching his tent, the brethren frowned three prairie rattlesnakes and were about to kill them. However, Joseph intervened and said, Let them alone, don't hurt them. How will the serpent ever lose his venom? While these servants of God possess the same disposition and continue to make war upon it, men must become harmless before the brute creation. And when men lose their vicious dispositions and cease to destroy the animal race, the lion and the lamb can dwell together, and the sucking child can play with the serpent in safety. <clears throat> End quote. Heeding Joseph's words, the brethren carefully picked up the snakes and moved them out of the way. Joseph then went on and exhorted the brethren not to kill a serpent, bird, or an animal of any kind during our journey unless it became necessary in order to preserve ourselves from hunger. On the surface, this seems like a natural thing for the Lord's prophet to do. However, Joseph records that he taught this principle frequently throughout the travails of Zion's camp, a principle that is explicitly contained within the Word of Wisdom, but is seldom discussed today. Section, the most controversial portion of the Word of Wisdom. Most faithful members of the church can agree on a good portion of the word of wisdom. We generally know what things we should avoid and what things are good for our bodies. But there is a whole section of the text we rarely, if ever, discuss, the sometimes of the word of wisdom. Each time we speak to groups about the word of wisdom, there is an awkward tension that quickly permeates the room when we get to the sometimes section. This awkward topic we're referring to is the flesh of beasts and fowls. Indeed, in our day, whenever anyone brings up the topic of eating meat, all kinds of defenses go up about nutritional needs and not being too extreme. And then, when one suggests that perhaps there is a moral or religious component to refraining from eating animals, people often entrench themselves in the views even more. <clears throat> this is perhaps the most difficult concept about health and the word of wisdom to accept. It was for us. So don't put down this book if you do not immediately agree with the information contained in this chapter, because the information typically cuts against some of our modern preferences. This chapter will contain far more quotes and sources than the other chapters simply because we want to present the abundance of evidence to you easily and thoroughly. We only ask, as with all sections in this book, that you read with pure intent, compare it with the scriptures, and then take it to the Lord to discover the truth. If anything seems amiss, we would advise you to check it against the scriptures and the words of the prophets. However, that's where we'll, we will be drawing all of our support, so buckle up. In fact, many people are surprised to learn that a majority of prophets have made mention about the in interpretation of meat consumption in the Word of Wisdom throughout the history of the Church. So with this in mind, let's begin examining the text of section 89 itself. Section Sparing God's Creatures To understand what the Lord expects of us in regards to the consumption of His creations, we turn to verse 12 of section 89. It reads, quote, Yea, flesh also of beasts and of fowls of the air, I, the Lord, have ordained for the use of man with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly. End quote. <clears throat> Often, when we discuss our use of meat, we stop at saying that it should be used sparingly. This word has numerous meanings to different members. Some believe it means once a meal. Others believe it means once a week. 
Yet others believe it means just having gratitude when you eat meat. According to one gospel scholar, it simply means sparing God's creatures. Similarly, if we were to employ the aid of the first edition of Webster's Dictionary, published in 1828, sparingly would be defined as not abundantly, frugally, abstinently, seldom, and cautiously. From these definitions, we can get a pretty good idea of what this passage meant in the time it was given. However, interpretations aside, we often miss the next very next verse where the Lord continues the thought and defines what he means by sparingly. Quote, and it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter or of cold or of famine. End quote. We will never forget the first time that we sat down together to study the word of wisdom and this verse hit us over our heads like a ton of bricks. The Lord says here, it is pleasing to him that it should not be used except in certain situations, those situations being winter, cold, or famine. So our default <clears throat> should be to not use meat in any capacity unless we find ourselves in one of the situations described. To us, this was revolutionary. Both of us had taught the word of wisdom to investigators on our missions and had no idea these verses existed. These verses are as plain as day within the revelation itself, but when we are not looking for them, they typically roll right past them. However, as we later discovered, Latter-day Prophets, such as Lorenzo Snow, have taught this principle plainly and consistently. Consistently, quote, unless famine or extreme cold is upon us, we should refrain from the use of meat, end quote. The Lord believed that this information was so important, he put it in the revelation twice. In verse 15, we read, quote, and these beasts and fowls hath God made for the use of man only in times of famine and excess of hunger, end quote. Again, the Lord reiterates that only when it is absolutely needful should we turn to the consuming of animal flesh. Now, some may argue that this verse is referring to grains because in verse 14, the Lord talks about grain and its use for man and beast. However, this interpretation doesn't make sense as the footnote on the word these in verse 15 directs the reader back to the verse 13 where the Lord refers to the use of animal flesh. Perhaps then Elder Joseph Fielding Smith summarized it best, quote, Neither is it the intent of this revelation to include grains and fruits in the restriction placed upon meats, that they should be used only in famine or excess of hunger. The antecedent of these in verse 15 may not be clear, but common sense teaches us that it does not refer to grain in the preceding verse, end quote. Many of these early church brethren taught this principle plainly and consistently. Consistently, For example, the first recorded talk entirely dedicated to the word of wisdom was in the 1842 General Conference. Hiram Smith, brother brother of the prophet Joseph Smith and church patriarch, spoke in depth on the blessings, promises, and commands in the word of wisdom, giving the most beautiful sermon, he exclaimed, quote, Let men attend to these instructions. Let them use the things ordained of God. Let them be sparing of the life of animals. It is pleasing, saith the Lord, that flesh be used only in times of winter or of famine, end quote. Hiram was not the only one to talk about this principle. Time and again, the brethren emphasized and reiterated the specific times in which we should eat meat, namely winter, cold, and famine. They have made it very clear that the Lord has commanded it to be eaten only in select circumstances and at no other time. In 1857, Heber C. Kimball reminded the saints that, quote, It is not pleasing in God's sight for man to shed blood of beasts, except in times of excess of hunger and famine. Go and read it for yourselves. It is not the Spirit of God that leads a man or woman to shed blood, to desire to kill and slay. End quote. 
These brethren make it clear that while the flesh of animals is certainly not prohibited, it is meant to be used only in select circumstances. Section, in the beginning, to truly understand this concept of sparing God's creatures, we need to go back to the creation of the world. When God created Adam and Eve, the first thing he said to them was to multiply and replenish the earth with the directive to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The next thing that the Lord did was to tell Adam and Eve exactly what they should eat. In the Genesis account we read, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree, in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed, and you shall have it... No... <laughs> To you it shall be for meat. End quote. As briefly mentioned in the previous chapter, the instruction given to Adam and Eve was to eat fruit as their primary source of sustenance. As the word meat in biblical language meant food in general, thus it can also be inferred that this is what is referred to when the scriptures use the word meat. When referring to animals, the scriptures typically use the word flesh. This instruction to Adam and Eve makes sense considering that the Lord gave it to them before the fall, before death entered the world. From the scriptures, it appears that this instruction remained in force up until the days of Noah, where in Genesis 9, the Lord gives additional instruction. After the waters of the great flood receded and Noah and his posterity began to dwell on the earth again, the Lord reiterated the command given to Adam and Eve to multiply and replenish the earth. This time, however, the Lord declared in verse 3, quote, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things, end quote. This is the first instance we have in the scriptures where the Lord sanctions the consumption of animals. But when we read the very next two verses, it gets very confusing. This is because there is a Joseph Smith translation beginning in verse 4, which reads, quote, But the blood of all flesh, which I have given you for the meat, shall be shed upon the ground, which taketh life thereof, and the blood ye shall not eat. And surely blood shall not be shed, only for meat, to save your lives, and the blood of every beast will I require at your hands. End quote. From this verse, <clears throat> from these verses, it appears that the Lord gave Noah the same instruction regarding his creations that we find in the Word of Wisdom. That is, there are only certain times when it is sanctioned to eat them. However, the Lord told Noah that he would require the blood of every beast at Noah's hands if they were slain unnecessarily. This same sentiment is expressed again in the doctrine of Cun in the doctrine and covenants when the Lord said, Woe be unto the man that sheddeth blood, or that wasteth flesh, and hath no need. The Lord does not want his children to kill animals for food unless it is absolutely necessary. Surely this cuts against the grain of our modern culture where some form of meat is often the centerpiece of each meal. But when we think about it, all animals are God's creatures and have spirits of their own. Though they have spirits, we also know that they are a lower creation. Man was given dominion or stewardship over animals. We are the higher form of life. We ought to treat all within our influence with love and care. True, the Lord may allow us to take the lives of these lower creatures of ours in times of need. Thus, it makes sense that these are for our use, but only when necessary. Section, Our Stewardship. From the scriptures, we know that God created all living things, including animals, which were created spiritually first, just as we were. However, as God's highest form of creation, humans have dominion over the whole earth. Righteous dominion includes proper care of animals. Animals have the right to life, which mankind should respect. 
as we have been taught by general authorities. Indeed, many prophets and apostles have reminded us that we have an obligation as Latter-day Saints to be kind to animals. As Joseph F. Smith once wrote, quote, Kindness to the whole animal creation, and especially to all domestic animals, is not only a virtue that should be developed, but it is the absolute duty of mankind, end quote. In addition to teaching kindness towards the animal race, the prophet Joseph Smith also taught the salvation of animals. He remarked that the animals that John the Revelator saw in vision were the most noble animals that had filled the measure of their creation and had been saved from other worlds because they were perfect. They were like angels in their sphere. End quote. It was clear that Joseph understood this sacred responsibility because animals have some form of salvation and have been placed in our care by our loving Heavenly Father. We ought not to take this trust lightly. It is our responsibility to ensure that we follow the Lord's instructions on the matter because to him life is sacred. In the Word of Wisdom, it is a set of principles. No, if the Word of Wisdom is a set of principles, then the underlying doctrine of this particular principle would be, Thou shalt not kill. Section Other Prophets Agree On another occasion, Joseph F. Smith spoke of the implication that killing animals can... of the implications that killing animals can have on our spirit. He said, quote, The unnecessary destruction of life begets... A, spiritual, a spirit of destruction which grows within the soul. It lives by what it feeds upon and robs man of the love that he should have for the works of God. Men cannot worship the Creator and look with careless indifference upon his creation. End quote. President Ezra Taft Benson also warned against the indiscriminate killing of innocent animals. It seems that many prophets saw the correlation between killing an animal and a general hardening of the spirit. Many have agreed and taught about how... Quote, how dreadful a sin is to take a life. These lives of animals should even should be held far more sacred than they are. End quote. Our stewardship and responsibility will take care of these animals is more than just goodwill. We will one day stand <clears throat> accountable before God for our stewardships, including our treatment of God's animal creations. That day of judgment will not be pleasant if we fail to treat his animals kindly. In fact, as Lorenzo Snow taught, quote, We have no right to slay animals or fowls except from necessity, for they have spirits which may someday rise up and accuse or condemn us, end quote. What we have shown so far should be enough to re-examine our use of animal flesh and even end our overindulgence of meat products. But to ensure that the saints of these last days understand just how important this directive given in the word of wisdom is for our spiritual well-being and our health, we will continue with the evidence in support of this idea. Section More Reasons to Spare Many of the brethren have directed us to refrain from eating animals except in the times provided by the Lord. They have also taught that it is not only unwise, but a sin to kill when there is no need. On this matter, Hiram Smith remarked, quote, To kill when not necessary is a sin akin to murder. End quote. For most of us, when we eat a hamburger or other meat product, we are not going out and shooting the animal ourselves. However, this does not absolve us from any responsibility. On the same subject, President Lorenzo Snow simply said that, quote, The killing of animals when unnecessary is wrong and sinful. End quote. He went on to say that it is not right to focus too much on one aspect of the Word of Wisdom while neglecting other just as important parts. Notice how both teachings echo the idea that meat consumption is only sinful when used unnecessarily. There is a time and a place for animal flesh in our diet, but when we use it outside the bounds the Lord has set it, it is a sin. 
It is clear that the early presidents and apostles of the church had strong feelings on the matter and did not mince words or meat. Their admonitions ought to be enough to warrant our obedience. However, there are many other benefits aside from obedience and the associated blessings. During one general conference address, George Q. Cannon reminded the saints that flesh is not suitable for man in the summertime and ought to be used sparingly in the winter, end quote. He also went on to say that other foods could be raised cheaper, in greater variety, and would not take as much preparation time. Here he taught that our money could be better used on other foods. What many do not consider is the high cost of meat. Meat is a very expensive form of protein. The average cost of one pound of ground beef in 2019 America is roughly $5. By comparison, the average cost of one pound of lentils is $1, less than one-fifth the total cost of beef. Nutritionally, the profiles of lentils and ground beef are very similar, except lentils are higher in nutrients and lower in cholesterol. This striking example shows how plant foods are not only cheaper, but more nutritious. Economically speaking, flesh foods are an unwise choice, and as one apostle noted, members of the church should never complain of scarcity or high price of animal foods. We are not only told that we are to partake of meat when absolutely necessary, but we are also told that when we that we will be held responsible for the lives that we take when we, we are not in need for the glutton who feasts upon meat daily like we did that day of reckoning would be quite overwhelming luckily for us the savior has provided the atonement because of his mercy the transgressions we have committed in ignorance or because of our weakness of our flesh can be wiped clean that means for those of us who have struggled with obeying this principle if we turn our hearts to the lord in true repentance and utilize the atonement we can avoid the testimony of these animals crying against us at the judgment bar of God. By obeying the limits the Lord has set forth, the only eating, and only eating meat in times of winter, cold, or famine, we may have access to the incredible blessings the Lord has promised to the obedient. Section, what about forbidding to abstain? Perhaps the most common argument raised over this interpretation comes from the Doctrine and Covenants itself. Section 49, verse 18 reads, quote, And whoso forbiddeth to abstain from meats, that man should not eat the same. It is not ordained of God. End quote. Many people believe that here the Lord says that if you forbid someone to eat meat, it is not of God. The implication is that a literal reading of God's instruction concerning the flesh of beasts in section 89 is incorrect. However, this argument does not stand scrutiny. The idea that one verse would be enough evidence to overturn a multitude of other scriptures and prophetic quotes is rather weak. What we should look for instead is how this verse can work together with other scripture and prophetic teachings that appear to be contradictory. This can reasonably be done by turning to the definitions found in the Webster 1828 Dictionary. The word forbiddeth is pretty straightforward and meant to prohibit. The word abstain means to forbear or refrain from voluntarily. And finally, the word meat meant food in general, anything eaten for nourishment. When we compile these definitions, the phrase forbiddeth to abstain from meats could be rewritten in our modern English to read, whoever prohibits someone to voluntarily refrain from any food. With this interpretation in mind, the verse would suggest that anyone who prohibits another person from refraining from a food of their own free will and choice is not of God. There is yet another interpretation of this verse from Dr. Lauren Spendlove. He makes the compelling case that the phrase forbidden to, forbiddeth to abstain was an idiom of the time, that is, a phrase that is not meant to be understood literally. For example, if 
we were to say that the word of wisdom helped us to become fit as a fiddle, it would be a phrase used to underscore our good health, not our literal commentary on how we look in relation to the fiddles. In a similar fashion, Dr. Spenlove shows that this idiom in section 49 meant commandeth to abstain. If we swap the phrase into this verse, it would read, Whosoever commandeth to abstain from meats, that man should not eat the same. The footnote on forbiddeth appears to confirm this assertion by Dr. Spenlove by suggesting that the phrase could be read, biddeth to abstain. In this interpretation, the Lord would be saying that anyone who commands another person to abstain from a certain food, particularly meat, that action is not sanctioned by him. Does this mean that we shouldn't refrain from eating meat? Of course not. The verse is simply saying that if you command someone to f or force them not to eat meat, that is not of God. This is because God gave them for the use of man as explained in the ne very next verse. For behold, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and that which cometh of the earth is ordained for the use of man for food and for raiment, and that he might have in abundance. What many people miss, however, is that in verse 21, the Lord reminds his saints about the sanctity of life by saying, And woe be unto that man that sheddeth blood, or that wasteth flesh, and hath no need. This is consistent with the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 9, and the circumstances given of the Lord for when to use the flesh of beasts. Thus, when properly understood, the concern over DNC 4918 should be satisfied. Section, Eating in the Millennium. It is no secret that we live in the last days before our Savior will make his triumphant return. Many of us have felt the urgency to prepare for what lies ahead. Though none can be sure exactly what is coming and when the Lord will return, it is clear that we are not far from the prophesied time. As President Russell M. Nelson remarked in 2016, the millennial generation has a great role to play in the second coming, and it is very possible that they may be the Lord's millennial people. Though no man knows the day nor the hour, some days it feels like we are in the proverbial week of the second coming, and we ought to be prepared. What better way to prepare than by living all of, God command, all of God's commands? This surely includes the word of wisdom. Those who will be alive during the Savior's millennial reign will not partake of any meat, just as in the days of Adam. This may come as a shock to some, but the scriptures make this abundantly clear. Isaiah, in prophesying of the millennium, says that all animals shall lie together and lions shall eat straw. It goes on to say that none shall hurt nor destroy. These were the verses Joseph Smith referred to when he reprimanded the men of Zion's camp and admonished them not to harm any animal unless it was to preserve their lives. Clearly, this indicates that no animal blood shall be spilled during the millennium. This is reiterated in the Doctrine of Covenants, which teaches us that in the day there will be no enmity between man and beast. President Lorenzo Snow taught that the saints violated the use of meat just as much or more than other aspects of the Word of Wisdom. He went on to say that the time was near when Latter-day Saints should be taught to refrain from eating meat and shedding of animal blood, end quote. His words teach us that in a future day the Church will again teach the people to strictly refrain from meat of any kind. Elder Bruce R. McConkie gave more insight into what the diet of the millennium might look like for us, for <laughs> us, yeah, for the righteous saints. Quote, man and all forms of life will be vegetarians in the coming day. The eating of meat will cease because, for one thing, death as we know it ceases. There will be no shedding of blood, end quote. Joseph Fielding Smith also weighed in on the matter of the millennial diet. In a letter he once wrote, quote, when the millennium comes, we will learn that the eating of meat is not good for us. Why do we feel that we do not have a square meal unless it is based largely on meat? Let the dumb animals live. 
They enjoy life as well as we do. Naturally, in times of famine, the flesh of animals was perhaps a necessity. But in my judgment, when the millennium reaches us, we will live above the need of killing dumb, innocent animals and eating them. It, if we will take this stand, in my judgment, we may live longer. End quote. If that is the proper diet in the Lord's kingdom upon the earth, wouldn't it stand to reason that it is the proper diet to prepare for his return? We are not fond of the argument that I might as well live it up now and eat all of my bacon if I don't get any in the millennium, end quote. To those who wish to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, Nephi responded by reminding us that this thought process is from the devil. We believe that we are best served preparing for our future estate, whether in heaven or in the millennium, by living these principles now. Since there will be no bloodshed in heaven nor on earth during this time, there will be no meat eating either. Although the Lord issues no directive in the word of wisdom about the living this now, perhaps it would be wise to at least consider these things. Section, Modern Research Overcomes Nutritional Objections. As we showed, Joseph Hilling Smith estimated that the eating of meat is, no, uh, is not good for us and that if we refrained, we would live longer. However, he believed that we wouldn't learn this until the millennium. He would probably be thrilled to know that it hasn't taken the advent of the millennium to obtain this knowledge. Hundreds of studies now confirm what the Lord has revealed nearly 200 years ago about our consumption of meat. It is not, in fact, good for our bodies. Before diving into some of this evidence, however, we want to remind the reader that to have faith in and obey revealed principles, we do not need modern science to confirm their efficacy. But it is exciting to note and reassuring to the obedient when man's wisdom catches up with the wisdom of the Lord. Upon hearing that meat ought not to be regularly consumed, one of the first nutritional concerns is usually about protein intake, or perhaps sufficient B12 levels. Indeed, many questions are often raised about the health implications of abstaining from meat. What many do not realize is that more data is being released every day showing that our bodies are not only equipped to function without meat, but it is optimal to refrain. There is now a large body of evidence indicating that animal foods lead to significant health complications. Those that eat a more plant-based diet can suppress cancer 80% more than those on a diet of animal foods. Other studies have found that even moderate consumption of meat is devastating to health. One study found that eating meat once a week leads to a 146% increase in risk of heart disease, a 152% increase in risk of stroke, 166% increase in risk of diabetes, 231% increase in risk of weight gain, and a 3.6 year decrease in life expectancy. Concerning B12, it is a bacterium made by an anaerobic microorganisms that grow in the dirt. Because of modern farming practices, the bacteria have been depleted to the point that it is nearly impossible for anyone to get adequate B12 without supplementation. That's why studies show that the proportionate amounts of omnivores and vegans have a B12 deficiency. It is untrue that those who do not eat meat are B12 deficient at a higher rate but than those who are not. It is often argued that animal products contain B12, but this is only because animals are injected with B12 before being slaughtered. Thus, it is easier to skip the middleman, or middle cow, and supplement directly with a B12 vitamin one to two times per week, because those who eat meat still have to supplement. 
Others are concerned about adequate protein intake. A protein is a combination of 22 amino acids. Some of these amino acids are produced naturally in the body, so we don't have to worry about them. The remaining nine amino acids are what we call essential, which means our body does not naturally produce them and thus must be supplemented with food. The good news is that these amino acids all originate in dirt and plant foods. That means the best way to get these amino acids is from plants. Many are shocked to find that there is virtually no such thing as protein deficiency. Just the opposite is true. A recent study found that a high animal protein intake is associated with a 75% increased risk in overall mortality and a 400% increase in cancer. In essence, it's more likely that you can have too much protein rather than too little. Surprisingly, our best source of protein comes from plants. It is also important to note that studies indicate our bodies need only about 10% of our daily caloric intake to be from protein. That means the average 150-pound person only needs about 50 grams of protein per day, even for bodybuilders. Furthermore, overconsumption of protein, in particular animal protein, is linked to autoimmune diseases such as diabetes, kidney disease, MS, IBS, and Lyme's disease. One study found a significantly increased risk of developing diabetes on a high animal protein diet. Another study found a 60% increased risk of heart disease on an animal protein diet and a 40% decreased risk on a diet of plant sourced proteins. These studies and many others indicate that plant sources are not only superior form of protein, but they lead to significantly improved health outcomes. From a scholastic perspective, the data is overwhelming. Considering the state of human health in America and among the church membership, we ought to consider the implications of meat consumption on our souls and our health. Section Testimony of the Authors We realize that for many members this topic can be a sensitive one because of the culture in which we live and the traditions that follow. We understand that much of the language from the scriptures and some church leaders can feel pretty harsh. We don't expect every person to agree with the evidence presented or even with the early church leaders. We're also understanding that of other common objections raised, such as the brethren don't oh, don't eat this way, or Christ ate fish, the adequate, to adequately answer these would require a much deeper discussion which falls outside the scope of this work, but will be answered at another time. However, even with these objections in mind, they certainly cannot supersede what is written in scripture and what has been consistently taught by church authorities. For now, the only thing we can do is invite you to seek revelation on the matter, because this is what we had to do for ourselves with this very same subject. Out of all the principles contained within section 89, this was perhaps the one we violated the most. So while Cassidy was frustrated with the relentless sickness and pain, she had no claim on the promised blessings because she was not living it exactly. We always believed Jordan to be the healthier of either of us, but as we mentioned previously, one doctor's test showed us that he had early sign warning signs of heart disease one of the symptoms of eating too much meat, even though he was only a thin 23-year-old. Knowing what we know now, this shouldn't have come as a surprise because uh, we had some form of meat at every single meal. Many hundreds of animals were killed for our enjoyment. When we discovered that it might be a violation of the word of wisdom to unnecessarily eat animals, we rejected the notion and made excuses and rationalized our behavior. However, we were soon convinced through the whisperings of the Holy Ghost that we had to change not only for our health, but for our spirits as well. How grateful we are for the Lord in his mercy who extend the arm of forgiveness when we realize we have done wrong and seek to make amends. We had neglected the stewardship and responsibility he set upon us through our ancestors, but now we committed to do better. 
We decided to give up meat and all other animal foods except in the circumstances outlined by the Lord for a two-week trial. Today we joke that we are still in that trial. It is because of this change that both of us are, were able to feel the health in our navels and marrows in our bones and to run and not be weary. After several months on this experiment, Jordan's blood work came back clean. No signs of heart disease whatsoever. Cassidy's blood work also showed no signs of inflammation or any of the diseases that previously afflicted her body. Even more important than what the test results showed, however, was that the constant stomach pains were no more. The migraines had subsided, the achy joints soothed, and once chronic kidney stones never returned. While our health has been an absolute gift that we cherish dearly, perhaps the most important blessing we have experienced since making this change has been a greater abundance of the Holy Ghost in our lives. When we are responsible for the death of life, directly or indirectly, as President Joseph F. Smith taught, a spirit of destruction enters into our hearts and we put ourselves at odds with God. In this state, it can be hard to hear the soft whisperings of the Spirit. When we cleared our minds and spirits of this dark cloud, we began to realize the promise made in the word of wisdom that those who keep it would find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. Indeed, since that time that we made a better effort to follow the whole word of wisdom, we have seen things in the scriptures we didn't see before, and we have had precious revelations from the Lord for edification for our family. We can say with confidence that we, had we not followed this principle, these things would have not happened. Our experience is certainly not unique. There are many saints in our day who have similar stories and experiences. What we, the authors, have noticed in recent years, however, is an increasing number of people who feel like they need to live the word of wisdom better but aren't sure how or why. Hopefully this chapter will serve as a next step for many people wanting to live the word of wisdom more fully. However, just as important as what we don't put into our body, if not more, is what we do put into our body, which we will cover in the next chapter.